0: start with this morning with some Bible trivia. There are, oh, it's been counted some 30-something miracles that Jesus performed while he was here on earth in the neighborhood of 35. Of course, he he performed many more of what we have recorded and specifically in Scripture. There are around a dozen or so, it's been counted, that show up in three of the four gospel records. I'm talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Eleven or twelve of them show up in three of the accounts. There are only two miracles that Jesus performed that appear in all four gospel records. In other words, they are ones that the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure that anyone reading... Any gospel account needed to know to truly understand who Jesus was. Now, do we know which two miracles fall into that category? All four gospel accounts. Now, the first one you you might not immediately be classifying as this miracle, it's the resurrection. And that's not surprising, because the resurrection is the heart of our faith. It is the central truth claim of our Christian faith. It is at the heart of it. Paul says, if the resurrection did not happen, then your faith is vain. It is useless. It is empty. But the second one, you'll probably guess from our scripture reading here today, is the feeding of what has been called the 5,000. Every single gospel writer wants to make sure that is central to the teaching. And in fact, it's been commented in the various gospel records, it seems to be at a kind of climax point of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is something that was absolutely fundamental to an understanding of Jesus in all four of the gospels. And not only that, Commentators tell us that if you are to go into the early church artifacts like the catacombs or other places that we found where the early church met, do you not want to know what symbols are frequently found in their churches or in their meeting places or in their homes? Loaves and fishes. Loaves and fishes. Why? Because this story, the feeding of the 5,000, is very central, not only to the claims of who Jesus is, but also to his character, what he is able to do, and what we are to take from it. This is a foundational miracle of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it's easy, even when we acknowledge, even when we embrace how foundational it is, how important it is to each of the gospel narratives, We sometimes get so lost in the miraculous details that we forget to step back and ask what really is going on in the story. We ask things like, how could he have done that? Well, how could he have done that? I mean, can you imagine being one of the disciples and Jesus is handing you bread and fish and it's like it's spontaneously creating right in front of you? I mean, there's five little barley cakes. I mean, we're not talking big, huge loaves. We're talking small barley cakes and two fish. Now, these fish are small fish. We're not talking big, massive, fatty, meaty fish. We're talking two small fish. And can you imagine these disciples standing there in front of them, and Jesus, I don't know how it happened, he hands them bread, and suddenly there's more. How did he do it? Well, do you think the one who had all power to speak a word and the world was created, had enough power in that moment to spontaneously and miraculously create a little piece of bread? Many little pieces of bread and many little pieces of fish. How did he do it? Because he's God. That's why. He can spontaneously create. We can get lost in the other details about the 5,000. Was it 5,000 or 10 or 15 or 20,000? I'm not saying those aren't important, but we miss what the real story is. And I think what we're going to see when we go into Matthew excuse me Mark chapter six today, and start understanding the context of this story, we're going to see that this miracle was far more, if you will, about the disciples than it was about the people who got fed. In fact, the tragedy is that the people who got fed didn't understand it. If they had eyes to see and ears to hear, they would have realized that Jesus was presenting to them that he was the bread of life and that they needed to feed on him if they wanted to be filled and satisfied in life. You can go to the, to the, to the parallel account in John chapter 6. I'll, we won't turn there, but just make a note of it. Maybe read it this afternoon. After this, after this miracle, Jesus had a chance to teach these people. And he said, you don't get it. He said, don't work, don't pursue the food that just perishes. Don't don't pursue the food that you eat and then it's done and, and then you have to eat some more. He said, pursue labor after the meat, the food that endures to eternal life. And then he went on to say, I am the bread of life. These people did not get the picture of the miracle that he was doing. And yet, in that, Jesus had a message for his disciples. We learned that his disciples were on a ministry retreat. We learned that they were there to get some rest that was quickly interrupted. And we learned that Jesus had a message for them that they needed to learn for the rest of their earthly ministry, both when he was here and when he was gone. We need to understand this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 in the context in which it's presented to us. The title of the message this morning is simply A Miracle at the Ministry Retreat. A Miracle at the Ministry Retreat. We're going to look at three points, I hope, that will help us bring these different ideas together and understand what Jesus was doing and teaching his disciples in ways, frankly, that all of us, need to be taught as well first of all we're going to understand here in interruption in interruption and if you have your bibles i hope you'll go with us to mark chapter 6 and we'll work through this text together and just see a few points come out as we gain the context that we need first of all an interruption look with me at verse 30 Now, where are we in Mark chapter 6? You remember that a couple weeks ago, we looked at Jesus sending out the 12 to be his instruments, his channels of divine power and mercy to the people of his day. Jesus had been going and doing his own miraculous works, healing and teaching. And now Jesus empowered the 12 disciples and they went out to do the same thing. And then Mark, as Mark loves to do, he had a little bit of an interruption. And he learns in, we learn in verse 14 that King Herod had heard of him, and he said, this is John the Baptist, who I beheaded. And last Sunday morning, we looked at the fact that, John, that Herod's guilty conscience in killing John really blinded him to who Jesus was. And we talked about our own guilt. And how ultimately our, our, our salvation from guilt and our own shame in the wrong things that we've done is found only in Jesus Christ. Herod didn't get it. He was blinded by his own lust, by his own guilt, by his own self-centeredness, and he ultimately missed who Jesus was. But now Mark is going to come back to where we were just before with the sending of the 12. Look with me at verse 30. And the apostles gathered themselves together into Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. So this is taking us back to verse number 12 and 13. And we just had that story of John the Baptist stuck in the middle like a sandwich. Now, notice here what Jesus says in verse 31. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Now, I want you to put yourself in this perspective. These 12 have gone out and been used mightily by Jesus, not only to do divine miracles, I mean, healing people, casting out demons, preaching the gospel. And now they come back, and Jesus knows they're wiped out. They're just physically tired. And Jesus sees that they don't have so much space as even to eat a quiet meal. There are so many people humming around. I mean, can you imagine how much people would have said, these are the healers. These are the ones we need to go get our provisions met from. They didn't have space so much to eat. And so Jesus says, come apart And be by ourselves. We're going to go on a retreat. We're going to go on a getaway, a vacation. And so they go. Look at verse 32. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. Now just pause there for just a moment. There is something about our culture and about our world that glorifies work and not in the place that the Bible ascribes to work. Don't get me wrong. The Bible says that work is fundamental to who we are as human beings. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say in the book of 2 Thessalonians that if someone is able to work and yet does not, he should not eat. Someone should not be receiving, in a sense, this charity from the local church when they are able to provide for themselves, but they will not. Work is central to who we are. It's central to who God made us to be, to have productive callings and to pursue, whether that's in the home front or whether that's beyond the home front, the calling that he has given us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are not to steal, but what are we to do instead of stealing? Instead, work with your hands. Why? So that you can go on nice vacations? So that you can get a big house and beautiful cars? No so that you may have to give to him that needs. Why does God want you to make money productively, if that's his calling, right, in, in you? So that you can give to other people, so that you can be generous. So this is part work. Is, I'm not downgrading work in any way, and yet there is a, a sense in our culture in which we glorify those who are the workaholics, glorify those who strive the hardest. And in fact, this is true even in the church, have you ever heard the old nursery rhyme? Mary had a little lamb, twas given her to keep, but then it joined the local church and died from lack of sleep. You know all that one, right? Well, no, but, but honestly, there can be something about the way that we live together in the local church that prizes a kind of, of frantic, frenetic, workaholic nature. And Jesus was the one who saw his disciples' needs, who recognized them and says, let's go apart, step away, be secluded, and rest a while. There is an absolutely essential place to physical rest, including in the ministry of the local church. There is a necessary time for isolation, for solitude that is intentional. Far too often, we rest when we should be working and we work when we should be resting. When we follow Jesus, we need to be intentional about rest, as he himself modeled for us. But I want you to see here. Notice what happens. The people, verse 33, saw them departing into the boat to go across the Sea of Galilee. And many knew him and ran afoot thither out of all cities and outwent them... They went faster than them and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people. Now notice the picture. The disciples and Jesus get into a boat and start going to the other side of the lake. And Lake Galilee is a long and skinny lake. It's not too far across. And so the picture here is that Jesus is getting into the boat and going to the other side of the lake, and the people see him, and what do they do? They start running along the border of the lake, and they're beating him there. Now, how would you feel if you're going on a ministry retreat because you're just bone tired, and the ship pulls up to land, and you see hundreds if not thousands of people waiting there for you? How would you have felt if you were the disciples? Let's get back to the other side, Jesus, hurry. I mean, seriously, put yourself in their shoes. Jesus sees much people. Now, we don't know exactly how the disciples reacted to this, though I think there are some clues later on. But notice what it says of Jesus. And Jesus was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Now, Jesus here is saying, disciples, come apart and let's rest a while. And Jesus gets there and they're waiting for him. And he doesn't say, all right, go home now. We've got no time for you. Jesus' immediate response is to begin pouring into them. Why? Because of what he saw. He saw that they were as sheep having no shepherd. Now, I don't see many shepherds around here today, though I know that some of us uh, uh, have, have or do own sheep. But I will say this. Shepherds were necessary for sheep in that day because sheep without a shepherd are the most vulnerable of the barn animals. Sheep are utterly hopeless without a shepherd. They lack protection. They can't fight off intruders. They lack provision. They go off and wander and get lost. They don't know where all the right food is. They lack care and cleaning and everything that they need. A sheep necessarily must have a shepherd to survive. And so Jesus looks at these people, and he sees what their fundamental need is, their fundamental human need. He looked at them. He saw them as faces. As people made in the image of God, and it says he was moved with compassion, his sight of them triggered something internal. The very idea of this moved with compassion has the idea physically of being hit in your gut. At the very core of Jesus' being, he felt deep compassion for these people. And so what did he do? What happened to the ministry retreat? Time out. Time out. How do you think, again, the disciples responded to that? What would they have done? What would they have said if Jesus weren't there? What would we have said? How many of us would have said, I'm sorry, I have nothing to give you today. Come back tomorrow. But not Jesus. Now, what does this tell us about who Jesus is? What does it tell us about us? Well, it tells us that Jesus had no on-off switch to his compassion. That is to say, there was never a time in, in Jesus' life when he saw someone who had need and immediately he just switched off his compassion toward them and said, someone else can take care of them. Never. His compassion was centrally tied to his divine character. He had made them. They were they were precious in his sight. He was going to die for them, and therefore his compassion would be moved toward them. Now, the question for us is how often and how readily we turn off our compassion toward other people. How quickly does that compassion begin to to rise in our hearts for someone else, and immediately the first thing is, but no, I can't. I can't. Sometimes I think we do that because we are feeling tired. We are feeling the weight of the world on our shoulders. We are feeling like we cannot simply, we simply do not have the energy to perform this. And let me be clear, you and I do not, we are not called to try to meet the needs of every single person and every single circumstance that we could possibly confront. That's not what we're called to do. But we are called to meet some of them. We are called to allow our compassion for our fellow man to rise in our hearts. In fact, John tells us this in 1 John chapter 3. He says, if you see one of your brothers have need and you have this world's good, you have the opportunity to meet that need. And he said, you shut the door of compassion in your heart toward your brother. He says this, how do you say the love of God dwells in you? When I slam the door shut of my compassion on needs that I am raised, I'm called by God to meet, and I know it. The Bible says, how can you say the love of God dwells in you because his compassion never turns off? His heart of mercy never stops beating. And here's the tragedy, I think, as I've seen in my own life. The tragedy is that the compassion of Jesus Christ that can well up in our own heart is its own source of energy. Sometimes we say, I'm so tired. I, I don't know how I can possibly keep on going. Have you ever true, felt the true compassion toward another human being to meet their need? Maybe it's a family member or someone you loved, and suddenly you found you had all the energy and you didn't know what, where it came from? I'm not talking about the kind of things we do by duty. I must do this. I must help here. I must teach this class. I must engage in this ministry. That can be very draining. I'm talking about the true ministry that comes from an overwhelming compassion toward another human being. And do you know what I have found? That is its own source of energy. Because it's his love and it's his power. It is his energy. He is the one who enables us. And you just get the sense of Jesus coming across a boat, undoubtedly tired, just like the rest of his disciples. And what does he see? He sees people and he has compassion on them. And suddenly, the energy is there to perform the teaching and the healing tasks that God had for him. I would simply say this I'm not intending to place any additional burdens, if you will, on you of duty and all these things, but just check your compassion. Check your heart of mercy towards your fellow man and ask how often you might be slamming the door on a kind of divine compassion and love. That if we just gave into, if we submitted to, if we allowed to be felt, it would be its own energy that God is giving us to meet a need. Remember that. Jesus was moved with compassion and it energized him. It enabled him in his human body to continue to teach and to go even when their plan, if you will, had been for a ministry retreat. He began to teach them many things. So not only do we see here an interruption, but I want us to see secondly here an inadequacy. in inadequacy, because this is really what we're getting at in the heart of this story. Look with me in verse 35. And when the day was now far spent, the idea here is that it was the late afternoon, the sun they would have seen going down in the sky soon, and not terribly much longer, it would have been approaching dusk. The day was now far spent. His disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away, that they may go into the country round about and into the villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Now I want us to look at three perspectives of the disciples here as to their own inadequacy. Jesus is teaching them something. Notice the first paradigm, the first perspective that his disciples had when they're confronted by a crowd of 5,000 men and perhaps ultimately in total 10, 15, or 20,000 or even more people. What is their first perspective? Their first perspective is this problem is theirs. Jesus, send them away so that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Now, how natural, how natural a reaction is that? Not my problem. Not my issue. They're going to have to figure that out themselves. That was, what was, that was what was their natural reaction, their natural paradigm, their natural perspective. And notice what they said. Send them away. Now, let me put yourself in their shoes. I don't want to be too harsh to these guys. I probably would have been in the exact same position. How much do you think the send them away was also so we can get some rest? Remember we're on a ministry retreat right now? Remember that we're supposed to be relaxing? Jesus, send them away. I know we've all been there before. How many times have we been there and maybe someone was overstaying their welcome just a little bit? And we try to give some subtle hints that maybe, oh, it's getting a little late. I uh, late. How 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 uh, how are you all feeling? I, I remember I have to give I have to give Paul Molitor a hard time here, uh, because he's not here. He's he, he's uh, for uh, going for Timo's wedding. Let's be praying that they would have a wonderful time there apart with their family. But because he's not here, I get to pick on him a little bit. We were there for, uh, at his house once for a New Year's Eve celebration. Some of you may have been to their house before for this. And we had rung midnight in. We had rung the New Year in. But the New Year was now long past. It was now probably after one in the morning. And, and I'll never forget um, Paul. Uh, I got the message because he, he said something along these lines. He just kind of said very simply... So, are we going to be sticking around here to ring the next new year in? (laughs) Now, you can ask Tabitha. I am not the most sensitive of people. I'm not the most aware of people at all times. Things can go over my head. I got that one. I got that one. It was like, all right, folks, we're heading out. Have a great new year. Yeah, you all know that. You've been there. And I get that sense of these send them away, Jesus. Send them away. It's their problem. Their food is their issue. And notice what Jesus says. He answered and said unto them, verse 37, Give ye them to eat. You give them something to eat. Now notice how this paradigm would have shifted. It's their problem. Jesus says, no, it's your problem. I'm making it your problem. What, Jesus? We're on a ministry retreat. We're taking a break. But then notice how the human paradigm turned. So now Jesus puts it on them, and listen to what they say. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy 200 pennyworth of bread and give them to eat? Now the practical ones come out. Now Dave McKean shows up on the stage. The treasurer, right? And he starts counting out, How much are we actually going to need? Now wait a second. 200 penny worth of bread. That probably means nothing to us. This was a denarius. This would have been the Roman coin. Friends, do you know that just an, an average everyday person, just a common laborer, might have made one denarius a day? One penny a day? Where, how much is 200 penny worth? Too much de, 200 denarii of bread? Do you know what that is? It is about eight months of work. Eight months. We're talking in, 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 in American terms, we could be talking tens of thousands of dollars if you were just to make the same kind of comparison. They're not saying, hey Jesus, should we just go get 200 bucks worth of food? They're talking about Jesus, do you want us to go and give eight months of salary? Jesus, is that what you want? In fact, we see in a parallel account that Philip, one of the treasurer types in the group, said that 200 denarius wouldn't even be enough. So now immediately from going to, that's their problem. That's their concern. Now Jesus says, no, it's your problem. You give them something to eat. And now they get the calculator and start saying, well, this is impossible. What are we supposed to do now? And then notice how, what Jesus says next. And they say unto him, and, and he saith unto them, verse 38, how many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say five and two fishes. So now it's totally impossible. Uh, Jesus, you said to go get give them somebody, here's what we have, five little barley loaves and two small fish. And then notice what Jesus says. And He commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. How stupid would you have felt? No, I'm serious. How stupid would you have felt? You have five loaves and two small fish, and Jesus says, there's 5,000 men here. Now, I want, to put that into, I want to put that into context. If we filled every seat of this sanctuary here this morning, we would cover about 500 people. 500. I want you to imagine 10 of these sanctuaries. 10. And then now you've just got the men. And then add another 10, and you might have the women. And add another 10 or 20 or more, and you might have the kids. And Jesus says, make them all sit down in companies. And the idea here is they sat down in groups. Now, the word there in the Greek has the idea of the the kind of rows that vegetables are in. It's literally like a gardening term. They sat down in neat little gardening groups of 50 and 100. Can you imagine the disciples going, okay, Jesus, all right, we need 50s and 100s. Can you make yourselves in neat little rows, please? And they're thinking, why are we doing this? We don't have food for them. We can't even spend eight months' worth of wages for this. I would have felt like an idiot. But nonetheless, they did. Verse 40, and they sat down in ranks, there's that word, by hundreds and by fifties. Now, at this point, their inadequacy is completely exposed. They're supposed to be on a ministry retreat relaxing, and now Jesus, think of the irony here. The irony here is that they were so busy they couldn't even get a meal to themselves, And the irony is that now they go on the ministry retreat to relax, and Jesus says, Serve 10 or 20,000 people food that you don't have. That's some irony there for you. And now they do it, and now what? Finally, third, let's look at the impossibility. The impossibility that really truly wasn't, of course, an impossibility. Verse 41, and when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven, acknowledging his father, and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. He didn't rain bread from heaven. He gave them to his disciples. Why? Because they were the ones that needed the lesson. They needed to play the part in this to really get the point. He gave it to his disciples to set before them, and the two fishes divided he among them all, and they did all eat and were filled. That is, they were stuffed. They were completely satisfied by the miraculous provision that was put in front of them. A complete impossibility. 10, or 15, or 20,000 perhaps people that were satisfied from five loaves and two fishes. Now, at this point, we could go back into the Old Testament. We could see the various pictures that already were pointing ahead to this moment, to God raining bread from heaven, the manna from heaven on His people. We could talk about Jesus as the Good Shepherd prophesied in the Old Testament, who made His people sit down in the green grass. He's a Good Shepherd. He brings his people to be fed. All these Old Testament pictures of a shepherd caring for and providing food for the people was satisfied in Jesus. But I want us to keep staying in context here as Jesus is demonstrating to these people that are like sheep without a shepherd that he is the bread of life, that he is the one that they need to feed on, that he is the one who's not just there for their physical food, but for their spiritual food, for all of their needs, for the one who is going to satisfy them entirely. What are his disciples seeing from this? Can you imagine how long it would have taken to feed this many people? How long would it take to feed 500, just 500 in this room? How long would it have taken to feed 10 and 15 and 20,000? They just keep on coming back for more, and there's just fresh bread in front of them, and they come back and give it, and they come back and give more, and they keep on coming back over and over and over again, and the bread is just there every trip they make. What would they have been thinking? Put yourself in their shoes. Their complete inadequacy that Jesus himself triggered, you give them to eat. Jesus, we don't. We don't have enough. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough resources. And Jesus says, exactly. Exactly you don't. But you got to start looking at the one who does. Because I do. And now, as he provides this wonderful miracle for them, they did all eat And were filled. I want us to look at one more thing here in verse 43. And they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. Now, the word baskets here is actually a technical term. It is the kind of suitcase that Jewish people took around in their travels. 12 suitcases, 12 baskets full Friends, how many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve. I'm no mathematician, but that's a basket for each. It was probably their basket. It was probably their suitcase that they had packed to take across the lake. And now Jesus provides miraculously not only for these thousands of them, but as they went around to gather the suitcase and filled their own basket up, do you think any of them stepped back and thought, you know what, he cares about me too. He cares that I have enough food. He cares that I have what I need. What's the whole point of this story? Is it to reveal that Jesus is the God-man who can create with the very word of his mouth? Yes, it is. Is it to prove that Jesus is the bread of life who we must feed on by faith in order to live and to carry out our spiritual tasks? Yes, it is. Is it also to demonstrate that when you are at your wits end in serving other people, that when you are utterly exhausted and you're not sure you can keep on going, is it to demonstrate that your shepherd cares deeply about your physical needs too? He cares about your rest. He cares that you have the provision to carry on. Yes, it is. So what should we take away from this miracle at the ministry retreat? The first thing is this. If you've never partaken of the bread of life, if you've never feasted on Jesus Christ, you need to do that today. You see, Christianity is not about doing things like going to church and reading our Bible and saying a prayer every once in a while. At the heart of the Christian faith is a feast. It's a meal. It's eating. It is feeding on Jesus Christ who is the bread of life. We so so dumb down salvation when we think if I just say a prayer and think a thought I'm saved. We don't understand what faith is is not just seeing Jesus but it is, if you will, taking him into us. It is partaking of him. This is what Jesus says. It is only the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood who has eternal life. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about a relationship with Jesus in which he, his essence, comes inside you by faith. Have you ever fed on Jesus? And friend, even more important or just as important, are you feeding on him daily? Every single morning we have this Bible that we can feed on, not just to get some interesting insights or thoughts, but so that we can partake of Jesus Christ afresh again. He has given us food to eat, so let's be eating. But secondly, friend, if we're going to understand the miracle at the ministry retreat, we're going to recognize that Jesus is the one who takes your and my meager provisions and multiplies them for his purposes. And friends, if I'm going to be honest about myself or about some of the things that we see in our own lives, it is to recognize that sometimes we simply don't come with Je- to Jesus with the provisions that he wants to multiply. There's an old story about this. It's a wonderful old story. A pastor went to a farmer and he said, if you had two farms, would you give one of them for the ministry of God, for his purposes? He said, of course I would. If only I had two farms, I would gladly give up one. The pastor said, if you had $20,000 in the bank, would you give 10000 of it? to serve the ministry that God has here? He said, oh, I, I, I would, if only I could give, if only I had that much to give. And the pastor looked at him and he said, if you had two pigs, would you give one of them for the ministry? And the farmer said, that's not fair. You know I have two pigs. What's the point? The point is not about wishing you had more so that you could give. The point is identifying what you have right now. Don't look around and say, I'll I'll start serving other people when I have more time. What resources of time do you have right now? Why don't you put them out in front of Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, would you multiply them for your purposes? I'll give you the time. I, I don't have much, but I have the time I have now. You say, I don't have the energy. Well, how much do you have? How much do you have when the compassion of Jesus Christ rises up in your soul? Why don't you start with that? and say, Jesus, I'm just coming before you. I don't have much, but you take it and use it. I don't, you say, I don't have much money. If only I had a little more money to give. Well, how much do you have? How much are you able to sacrifice? Then put it in front of him. The point is this. Let's stop withholding what we do have by focusing on what we don't have. If only I had, if only, if only. And let's start bringing in front of Jesus what we do have and start trusting him to take care of us when we provide for him the resources that we do have. These disciples, Jesus intended them to leave that ministry retreat knowing, even if I don't have much, when it's in service of Jesus, he can multiply it to meet the need. And what's best, he cares enough to take care of me in the process. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this miracle. That was at a ministry retreat. We see right after this, they got back in a boat and they went back. Their ministry retreat was cut short. But the lesson that they learned is nonetheless a lesson for us. God will take care of us. Oh, I pray, Father, both for those of us who need rest this morning and need to step away into a solitary place, but also for those who need to bring our bread and our fish before Jesus and allow him to use them. May we stop focusing on what we don't have and start focusing on what we do. I also pray, Father, for even one here this morning who has never partaken of the bread of life. I pray that today would be the day, by faith, they would feed on Jesus. But today be the day that they partake of him for eternal life.